Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello everyone, today we are mixing both sports, cricket and horse racing. My guest today is Ken Rutherford, the former New Zealand Test Captain, who is now in charge of Hawkesby Racecourse in Northwest Sydney. How are you this evening, Ken? Yes, yeah, Stephen, very, very well, mate. Uh, look, we're well into autumn here in Sydney. It's uh, a beautiful day. I actually live in Castle Hill in, in, uh, in Sydney, so it's about a 35-minute trek each day to the Hawkesbury and, and back again. But uh, no, nice, 25 degrees here today, lovely autumn day and, and looking forward to some really good racing over the weekend. Well, thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm looking forward to um, our chat this evening, this morning here in the UK. Um, you've got a glass of red wine with you. It's the first time I've had a guest with a glass of red wine. How have you been coping with COVID, that dreaded word, for the last 12 months? Well, I started here at Hawkesbury first uh, of February 2020, so it was about sort of seven weeks before COVID really struck around the world. And uh, the first day I arrived at the Hawkesbury from uh, Cambridge in the Waikato in New Zealand, Stephen, it was 46 degrees the day I I uh, flew into Sydney, so I went straight to the pub where the air conditioning was turned full on. I tell you, but. Uh, Seven weeks later, the world turned upside down. So I, I, I went back to New Zealand to be with my family through the, the lockdown in, in Australia and New Zealand at that time and came back sort of mid-May, I suppose, and then uh, did my sort of winter here and, and early spring here in Australia 2020 and then came back to New Zealand over Christmas time to be with my, my family again and uh, have been back here in the Hawkesbury sort of since, since January. So things are pretty much back to normal. I know in the UK it's been... A long lockdown. I mean, you guys have uh, really gone through the last sort of three or four months uh, here in Australia and in New Zealand as well. It's been uh, less of an issue, I, I guess. I mean, obviously, it's an issue, a big one. But uh, in terms of the uh, you know the everyday life, things have been pretty much back to normal for some time here. Well, thanks for that. We're slowly coming out of it here. Uh, can you tell listeners what your role is at um, Hawkesbury Racecourse? 
So I'm the CEO at, at Hawkesbury Race Club. So basically you have your, your Metropolitan Clubs or Club, which is the Australian Turf Club, which is at Ramwick and at Rose Hill, where they have the majority of the Saturday meetings in Metropolitan Sydney uh, under the Australian Turf Club auspices. And then they have midweek and Friday night meetings at Canterbury and at Warwick Farm. So there's four tracks in Metropolitan Sydney. And then you've got five uh, provincial clubs around New South Wales, uh, classed as provincial uh, standard clubs, which is Newcastle, Wyong, Gosford, Kemba Grange, which is down by Wollongong, and uh, here at Hawkesbury. So we're the sort of next tier down. So we have 25 meetings a year, I reckon about right, uh, four or five Saturdays, four or five Sundays, a lot of Thursdays and a few Tuesday meetings. So... Uh, our big meeting is the Hawkesbury Gold Cup meeting, which was here on Hawkesbury about ten days ago. Uh, the start of the start of May, the first Saturday of May, we had about four, four and a half, five thousand people there that day. Stephen, good old day. Group three race, the Hawkesbury Gold Cup's been going since eighteen sixty something. Right, it's one of the oldest races on the Australian racing calendar. It was won for the second time by a horse called Archidemus, uh, pretty much led all the way. Uh, another group three race on the day and a couple of listed races as well and so it's our, it's our biggest day and but we're pretty much a support card to the, the real good stuff that happens in metropolitan Sydney. Yeah well I've been to Newcastle and I've been to Rose Hill courtesy of a mutual friend of ours who I'd like to shout out here is um, Shane Meaney who uh, introduced me to you so he's taken me to those two courses but he hasn't taken me to Hawkesbury. Well if you do come to Hawkesbury Stephen you'll be welcomed with uh, a cold schooner of uh, 4X Gold and uh, maybe one of these cheeky Grand Burge red wines or probably a De Butley red wine, actually. And uh, also the finest oysters and scops you're ever going to eat on a, on a racetrack anywhere in the world, sir. Oh, well, that sounds appetising. When, when we're ever going to be able to, to fly out to Australia again is another matter, really. But uh, uh... That's right. Let's go back to your cricketing days. Um, I know your brother Ian played for Otago, um, and he's eight mm. years eight years older than you. Is that how you started playing cricket, bowling to him in the garden? Yeah, a bit, a bit of that. I mean, Ian played for Otago at, at 17 years of age, so I was about nine. Uh, but my, my parents came from Aberdeen in, uh, in Scotland, Stephen, and they came out to New Zealand in about 1951, around then. And uh, it's a bit sketchy, the details about their, 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 their trip. They weren't married at the time, so in those days that was quite a major thing, I'd imagine. Um, and if you talk to, to them both, they had every intention of leaving Southampton with the first stop on the route being Cape Town in South Africa. Had a couple of weeks uh, walking around Cape Town, didn't like it much. I don't know why you wouldn't like it much, because I've been there, so it's not a, not a bad place. <laughs> Uh, then headed to Fremantle, didn't like Fremantle too much, which is probably fair enough back in 1951. Uh, went to Melbourne, didn't like Melbourne at all. And then the last stop on the, on the journey was Wellington. And uh, so I kind of stuck there. And my father, having been a, a servant of the, of the British Army in, in Italy in, in World War II, had, had an apprenticeship as a plumber after that, couldn't find any work in Scotland, so ended up getting some work in, uh, in Belclutha. Uh, which is south of Dunedin and uh, in South Otago. And, and actually his first job was helping to build the Belclutha Hospital, which is still there today. So that's how we ended up down south in and, and Dunedin. And, and that's where the Rutherford family sort of, the roots grow from, from that time. 
And then you, uh, I can certainly vouch for, for Cape Town. I've been there myself, so I don't know why they left Cape Town. Uh, you'd have finished up playing for South Africa then. But uh, you made your uh, debut for Otago yourself at 17, and uh, Ian was playing in that game. Did you play many games with him? Yeah, the last game Ian played was against Central Districts in Invercargill at the Queen's, Queen's Oval in Invercargill, and uh, him and I put on about 50, I think, together uh, in the rain, rain-affected rain game, and it was, I think, still my first season, so he sort of got to the stage where he was to a mid-20s and had to finish his BCom as a count degree and had to make a decision those days, I guess, in terms of playing a bit more cricket and not earning a lot of money. I mean, back in those days, I recall when we were travelling north to go and play Auckland, Canterbury, Wellington or whoever, we used to get to the Mamona Airport at Dunedin and receive a little brown envelope and it pretty much contained uh, $12 a day, which was enough for a $2 box Quinella or a pie and a pint, Stephen. So, yeah, you, you weren't there for the money in those days. You were there for a lot of fun and a lot of good times and a lot of good cricket. But that was about it. So... I think my brother, by the time he was 25 or 26, pretty much decided that uh, financially-wise it wasn't going to be a, a great idea to keep playing uh, domestic cricket in New Zealand back in about 82, 83, and uh, decided to, to finish his account degree and moved up to Central Otago, where I ended up going about two years later and playing the next level down, sort of sub-association cricket in New Zealand, which is Hawke Cup cricket, and played with him at Central Otago and had, a, had two great years up there. Now, you weren't quite playing to uh, IPL salaries in those days, were you? No, as I say, $12 was a uh, $2 box, Quinella, a pint, a pint. And uh, mind you, warm-ups were a cup of tea and a biscuit too. So the, these days, when I watch my son Hamish uh, warm up before a game of, say, T20 in particular, it's, uh, you know, they've got a hell of a sweat on and uh, they're, they're proper, proper athletes these days. Well, two years later, uh, after your first-class debut, you made your test debut against the West Indies. You probably want to drink a bit more of that wine when we talk about this. Should have had some before I, uh, I faced my first ball, yeah. So you played against the West Indies in uh, Port of Spain. That's as a 19-year-old opening the batting against some quite tame bowling of Michael Holden, Malcolm Marshall, Joel Garner and people like Courtney Walsh. Um, you made a pair on your test debut were you ready for the experience when you was it too soon when you got selected? Oh, clearly too soon. There's no, there's no doubt about that. I think I played eight first class games of cricket uh, prior to that for Otago and, and got 100 against Auckland at Eden Park number two. Um, Bruce Edgar, who was the erstwhile and a very sound companion to John Wright, wasn't he, at the top of the New Zealand order for a number of years, he was unavailable, nor was John F. Reed, who had been a very good servant of New Zealand cricket as well, who sadly passed away last year. So there weren't too many other options, I guess, in those days for the selectors. And I, I guess I was seen as a, as a young guy who has always had scored runs at age group cricket coming through, uh, and it was a guy who could maybe go to the Westerners and, and be the third opener and maybe the reserve batsman and sort of, sort of not play all four test matches as, as ended, up, ended up happening. So... I was thrust upon it. I think the worst thing I did, Stephen, was the game before the first test at Port of Spain. I scored 100 against Courtney Walsh, Tony Merrick, who you might recall played for Warwickshire. Warwickshire yeah, yeah. Um, and a guy I think called Aaron Daly, who bowled as skinny guy who played uh, in their local competition. Uh, he was quite quick as well. So I got 100 in that game. 
and pretty much had to get picked for the for the first test match at Port of Spain. And uh, I've got to be honest, I mean, I was probably a bit uh, naive. No, not a bit. Highly naive about uh, what, what lay ahead of me. I thought well, I've scored runs reasonably consistently through schoolboy and age group cricket in New Zealand. I'll, I'll be okay. I'll be right. Uh, but obviously, I mean, it was just a, it was just a step up by the extreme, by a hundred steps, by a thousand steps up to what I'd faced before, and, and to face Malcolm and Joel and Michael, and then you've got Courtney coming up, or Patrick Patterson was still around. Winston Davis played a few games as well. Um, yeah, it was pretty tough. It was pretty tough. Uh, the second innings though was interesting of that Test match to complete the pair, and then I got run out without facing a ball. So. Um, yeah, what you know, happened I feel a bit aggrieved by that, quite frankly. What happened with the run out without facing? It's the worst way to get out for anyone. Well, I think Wrighty was Wrighty being the kind-hearted soul that he is. Um, he, he thought on the sixth ball of the first over, of the second innings from, from Marshall, I'd better try and protect young Rudds at the other end and uh, hit it straight to Roger Harper, who was on as a substitute fieldsman and, and called yes. And, uh, and then followed with, uh, yes, no, wait, but I was already halfway down, but I was out by a yard, of course. But uh, that was pretty soul-destroying, the fact that I couldn't uh, contribute to my own demise in the second dig, that it was, uh, it was done with, without my facing the ball. Well, Graham Gooch got a pair on his first, in his first test as well. So, But what was it? I'll, I'll tell you something, though. My, my, my first scoring shot in test cricket was in the next test at Guyana. Uh, Joel Garner bowled me this lovely leg cutter and I, and I found the gap between second and third slip uh, at, at very catchable height, about stomach height. You know, I don't know what Viv was doing at second slip or Richie Richardson was doing at third slip, but they weren't looking at the ball. So I could add three in a row quite easily. Well, they were the best side in the world and probably even the best test cricket side of all time. And we've got Viv playing, Desmond Haynes, Gordon Greenwich, Richie Richardson in the batting lineup. And we've mentioned the bowlers, uh, and your your highest score in the series was five. Uh, Hell of an effort, that. I mean, I mean, that you, was you the last innings as well. Yeah, you, you couldn't plan that, could you? I mean, five. You know, and uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I recall the last innings quite quite vividly because it was. I think I walked out there to the bat with about forty five minutes to go to stumps, and uh, Jeremy Carney had had just broken his arm. And he had nicked a bit of his forearm, you know, so there was a bit of blood coming out as he was lying prostrate uh, across the, the, the crease line. You know, I remember, I remember with 45 minutes to go walking out and taking guard, and there was a pool of blood where your back goes to take guard. And Desmond Haynes with his short legs was saying, "Oh, young brother," but he says, "How does that feel with that blood? You're going to kick that blood away." I mean, that was that was <laughs> that was pretty tough. And I remember getting through actually to Stumps being five not out, thinking that's pretty good. It was five thirty was Stumps time, and the, the, the clock on the on the ground at Sabina Park in Jamaica just turned five thirty-two. So I was walking off, and the umpires said, "No, one more over to go." And I got out about the third ball. So that was pretty soul destroying. That was probably the saddest I've ever felt in a career field, to be frank. But uh, let's have another little sip of rewind. Yeah. All seriousness, now it, it when batsmen have a, a a bad spell. It must have been very hard and difficult playing against that bowling and having a run of low scores like that. Yeah, well, I, I guess I kind of married it or you know, uh, bounced it off against the fact that I was I was nineteen and and I was incredibly naive, obviously, and I thought I'd do pretty well and probably 
I wasn't as naive as the selectors would have picked in the first place, perhaps, but uh, I, I kind of felt that, you know, it was all going to be a lot better from, from there on in. And uh, it probably took three or four years to to, 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 to kind of get a bit better. Like, you know, cricket's a game of statistics, isn't it? So when people look at my, my average, I finish with being about 27 or 28 test cricket, they sort of go, well, that's pretty average in terms of, you know, where averages are these days. But I kind of back of mind go, well, you know, None of you guys started with uh, your first seven innings as being uh, averaging 1.71. No, that just takes some beating. But uh, <laughs> you, you did get back in the side in early 1986, uh, a very strong New Zealand side that had won away in Australia and then you were playing at, at home against uh, Australia, uh, a series that you won 1-0. And you also came across to the UK in 86 and again beat England in England was that the or is that the best New Zealand side there's ever been or how does it compare to the current side uh, that's that's a question that a lot of you know, my era of New Zealand cricketers had been uh, asked of and uh, you know it's a bit of a cliche isn't it Stephen where you can't compare an era to an era um, I'd, I'd say that the present situation in New Zealand cricket is, is, is a squad, the, the greatest squad. You could basically draw, I reckon, 20 to 25 players who could represent New Zealand very, very well across you know, the three formats, whereas in the 80s, you had your you had your Hadley and you had your Crow, and you had really good players like Coney, Wright, Jeff Crow, Edgar, John F. Reid, Sneddon, Bracewell, who all contributed, Ian Smith, obviously, as well. Um, I've left guys out, I'm sure. Who could all contribute very, very well, but the overall numbers in terms of today's numbers, uh, comparatively speaking, weren't weren't quite there. But I think the eleven that we would put on the field in 1986, which was a halcyon time for New Zealand cricket, would probably compare pretty favourably to now. Um, but it is so hard, so hard to to be comparative about that. Uh, but the 85, 86 time, and, and you know, leading up to when he retired in 1990. I mean, Richard Hadley was just, he was the difference. And um, I look back on my own career and a lot of, a lot of my memories about New Zealand test victories are built around Hadley performances. I mean, we, we beat India to step ahead a couple of years, Stephen, in 1988 in Bombay, which was unheard of. And it was on the back of a marvellous effort by, by Richard Hadley with the ball. Um, John Bracewell bowled well and got some important wickets. Andrew Jones played amazingly in the second innings. He got a 70 or an 80 from memory bat for a long, long time on a wicket that was impossible to bat on. Um, but a lot of my personal memories of playing for New Zealand and, and winning test matches for New Zealand are built on what Richard Hadley did. Moving forward, Richard wasn't there in 1992 when in a, a home World Cup, New Zealand reached the semi-final and you won seven of your eight matches. What was it like playing, seven of your eight group matches, what was it like playing in a home World Cup? Well, it's something we all aspired to, to, to do. I mean, I, I recall playing in 91 and, uh, you know, six to 12 months beforehand, I think to myself, well, I've got to get myself in that 14. It was something you, you, you really, really want to do. And we had gone pretty poorly, quite frankly, as a team leading up to that World Cup. I think we played... England in a four or five match one day series leading into it and lost all games. And so we had no expectation. I mean, a lot of people f- forget that for that first game at uh, 
uh, Eden Park against Australia, which was normally a packed house. You know, you should have 40,000 there playing Australia in a normal ODI, you know, notwithstanding the fact that it's actually a World Cup game. Uh, we only had half half full there. It was about 18 to 20,000 people there. So the, the levels of expectation were, were pretty low. Uh, Crow got, I think, got 100 or, or 90. I got a, a few from memory as well. We got about 230, 240. And we restricted them to about 215, 218, something like that. David Boone, I seem to recall, got about 90 odd. But that was the catalyst that built the momentum to, to, to see us go right through the whole competition. So we had a rain effect game at uh, Napier. We beat Zimbabwe. We beat Sri Lanka at Hamilton. Uh, I can remember each of the games pretty much um, verbatim, to be honest. Uh, we beat India at Carisbrook. We beat England at Basin Reserve. Etc. And then, of course, we got beaten in the semi-final with Pakistan, which is the one we all focus on. Yeah, I mean, that first game against Australia, you, you, you did get a half-century yourself. And, and you also got a half-century in that semi-final against uh, Pakistan. Yeah, who, don't, don't talk to me about that. It took me 24 balls to get off the mark. That uh, wouldn't be good for strike rates these days, would it? Um, no, but, I, don't, I don't know what happened there. But Mushtaq Ahmed, I always had problems with Mushtaq Ahmed, the Pakistan league spinner. You know, everyone else seemed to think they could pick him, but I couldn't. Um, I reckon everyone else lied, they couldn't pick him either. But um, but he was a great bowler, and uh, I don't know, I froze the crease for 24 balls, and eventually Crow, he shook me awake and said, mate, you just got smashed next on four, and I did, and, uh, and, and things went pretty good from there on in. But... I think we got 260, I think, batting first, which is yeah, probably a defendable total. But yeah, in those, in those days, as you know, that's 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 a decent score in those days. But Inzamam come out and played unbelievable. I, the, the partnership between me and Dad and Imran was unreal. They just paced the innings perfectly through the middle stages, well, perfectly in the end. Um, yeah, but a lot's been said about that. Yeah, I mean, it was a World Cup where the two teams that played best in the group matches... Um, England and New Zealand, um, both neither of them finished up winning the competition. Yeah, that's right. I seem to remember Pakistan had a rained-off game where they got half points, and if they hadn't, and they were losing that rained-off game, I might have been against South Africa. When Jonty had that run out, I'm not, I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm probably wrong, but they, they they picked up a point for an abandoned game. If they didn't, if they hadn't picked up that point, they would have made the semi-finals. Well, let's go a bit further forward. Well, January 1993, when you first captained New Zealand, um, and then you cap- eventually captained them for 18 test matches, was that something you'd always wanted to do, being captain of New Zealand? No, not at all. I, I, I think the fact that I had played at a young age and, and done pretty poorly, I, I was kind of surprised by my own progress at all. So captaincy was never something which I... You know, aspired to, I guess. Um, Martin Crow pulled out. I think that, that, that game against Pakistan and Hamilton was was the first time I captain New Zealand. Martin Crow had a problem with a, an injury, and I was kind of given the reins twenty four hours before the the game started. So, I think it helps when you have no expectation of yourself, and uh, the, the probably the public has zero expectation of as my as a captain as well. But there's a game we probably should have won. I mean, we're chasing a, a pretty meagre t- total in the, in the fourth innings of the game, about 120, 130 runs, I, I think. But Wekar and Wazin came in and did their thing on the last day. So there was no honour lost in terms of that. But uh, I guess captaincy was something which uh, I, I grew, to, grew to enjoy and, and grew to believe that I, I, I had a bit of a pinch on for it. And how difficult was it 
captain aside because Martin Crow was out injured quite a bit, and of course Richard Hadley had now retired. So the sort of golden days of New Zealand cricket were a bit behind you. And you captain uh, New Zealand on the England tour in 1994. 94. Yeah. yeah. It was it was pretty tough. I mean, obviously, you know. You, it's a great cliche in sporting teams that you go through a rebuilding a rebuilding period, and and we did at that time. I mean, you know, pedals Richard Richard, as I said before, nineteen ninety was his last series, and, and Martin had all those issues with his his fitness and his his knee in particular through his latter stage of his career. So uh, these your great two champion cricketers. You know, prior to that, was someone like Glenn Turner, who was you know. Sort of mid seventies to, to early eighties when he pulled out. So, you know, on those days weren't overly blessed with with champion cricketers, but we were always competitive. And I guess the issue we had in the early nineties was maybe uh, we weren't as competitive as we could have been in terms of being a team. But I don't know. You, you look back and you, you say to yourself, "I could have done things a little bit differently." I'm sure in general life people look at that and say that's the case, but. You know, we, 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 we tried hard. We had a couple of good wins, but certainly in terms of that rebuilding process, uh, it was a lot of ups and a lot of downs. Your last of your 56 tests and 121 one-day internationals were in uh, 1995 um, against Sri Lanka. Were you surprised to be dropped at that time? Because I looked up your last three scores in one-day internationals and you did quite well. Yeah, you should read my book, actually. I've, I've kind of pinpointed it there, but no, I'm just being a bit flippant there. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I guess from a personal perspective, it was time to move on as well. I mean, I remember Jeremy Carney, uh, the very sage Coney, saying to me at a very early stage of my career, probably in the Westerners, actually, that a career is not sort of uh, bound by your age. It's bound by the time you spend within it. And... Uh, Although in 1995 I was still only 29 years of age, which is quite young in terms of you know your, your ability to play on as a cricketer, I was quite old, very old, archaic almost in terms of my experiences. And I think when you like any job, work, or whatever, sometimes you get a bit sour about life and you just need a refresh in general. So I think looking back at that sort of time, the 94, 95 around that time was probably a time for K.R. Rutherford and, and New Zealand cricket to, to part ways anyway. So, you know, I went to South Africa, which might be your next question, and played, had every intention of going to South Africa and playing for Transvaal for two seasons and do that and get some runs, hopefully, and enjoy myself and get things back on track and, and find the joie de vivre about, about cricket again and then come back to New Zealand and try and play again. But I enjoyed myself so much in South Africa that uh, I pretty much stayed there. Yeah, you you played there for I think five seasons, and you were the South African mm. Cricket of the Year in two thousand. Just love it. Oh, I can't speak high enough of of my time there and the, the friends and uh, family I, I have over there, and, uh, and and my cricketing and, and life experiences that I've had in South Africa. And, uh, it's a marvellous country. Obviously, in the, the mid-90s with Mandela taking over, the country was in a state of euphoria, uh, great change and positive change and positiveness about the way that they were going to go forward. And One of my great sporting memories is being in South Africa when the African Nations Football Cup was on in 1996 and South Africa winning that and just 
the outpouring of support for their local team and it was far, far superior to the 1995 Rugby World Cup uh, win by the same country. So, no, I enjoyed it. From a cricketing perspective, it was unreal. I mean, the, the, prov- the provincial system there, the Curry Cup system was very, very strong. Through the 90s when you played Western Province, you played against guys like Desmond Haynes and Brian McMillan and Gary Kirsten, et cetera. When you played Natal, you played against Sean Pollock and Malcolm Marshall and, and Jonty Rose, et cetera. You went through to Orange Free State where they had lots of Alan Donald and others. Uh, and and each each province had a really, really strong side. So cricket-wise, my, my, my um, ambitions did diminish didn't diminish at all and, and life-wise it was just a great time. Uh, did you ever have a chance of playing county cricket over here then? Oh, looking back I would have liked to have. I mean I never really explored the possibility with having two um, Scottish parents and uh, having a British passport as I do myself now but um, so I never really explored it and I guess in those days Stephen you know particularly through the 80s you had uh, West Indian fast bowlers plenty playing I mean, even Wrighty, when Wrighty would talk about Derbyshire, you know, with Michael Holding and Derby as well, they, they would pick their games where Holding would play and when Wrighty would play. And, you know, it was a green seam, obviously, Holding would play and it was a flat one, you know, John might play. But I would have loved to play county cricket. It's something my son has has, has achieved and is, is going to be back over there very shortly playing for Glamorgan. Oh, he's playing for Glamorgan because he played for Worcestershire last year, didn't he? Yeah. He yeah. played for Worcester last year. Uh, he's played for Essex in the past and Derby. Um, and he's got a contract for a couple of months from July with Glamorgan. Oh, with your uh, British passport, you'd have been you'd have been a certainty being picked now if you'd have been uh, the right age, <laughs> wouldn't you? Yeah, well, that's, that's right. I'd like to think so anyway. But uh, no, I, I probably, I really, I taught England three times, 86, 90 and 94 and, and loved it. I mean, you go to those grounds, um, some of them aren't great. Uh, watching a guy called Bernie Mayer score a century in 1986 at uh, Derbyshire when it was about minus two degrees and he took all day to get his hundred. That wasn't one of the great experiences. But then you, you go to some other great grounds, don't you? Um, some of the obvious ones have been the test venues, but some really terrific little grounds like Swansea. Um, let me think. I mean, there's, there's some other really nice grounds around the place where you go to and you think you're pretty, you're pretty lucky to be playing there. Well, you've got some nice grounds in New Zealand as well. But uh, let's turn yeah. to your other sport, uh, racing. And, and to start with, um, when you were playing cricket, did you used to nip off to the races? Were you someone who, when you were playing, had you got bets on in races and things like that, a la sort of Keith Miller and Sigari Sobers? Of course. Um, the, the only time I've ever gone off the park to, to, to watch a race, I ain't ever done it once. Uh, that was in, uh, at the Wanderers in Johannesburg where very good friends of mine, Gary and Dean Alexander, had, who were trainers at Turpentine in Johannesburg. And they now really came to Australia. Actually, they really came to Murray Bridge in South Australia. They had a, a good chance in a, in, 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 a, in a big race in South Africa called the Metropolitan, the Met, the Met down at uh, Kenilworth in Cape Town. And uh, we were fielding. And, and Jimmy Cook, our coach, was also pretty keen in the horses. Um, and I said, Jimmy, look, I've, I've had, a, had a decent bet on this horse from the Alexander stable. We're fielding. Uh, I might have to, my hamstring might need some treatment for 10 minutes. So I hopped off at about 3.33pm the Saturday afternoon when we were fielding. And 
I felt a bit better actually, but the game was going nowhere. So I went upstairs and watched the race and came back out. But that's the only time. But I think it's, it's safe to say that um, I think in the old days, certainly playing for Otago, where I grew up, uh, if you weren't having a punt, you, you weren't part of the team. Uh, so how did your interest in racing start then? Was it at a young age? And... Well, you talked you talk about my brother Ian. Well, I've got another brother, Neil, who's two years younger than Ian. So uh, he's into his harness horses, or was, and well, no, still is. And um, so when he left school, he started mucking out with a, uh, a trotting trainer up in Christchurch called Freeman Holmes, who had two really good horses, a horse called Noodleham, who's... I think still got the, the record on New Zealand harness racing, have the most consecutive wins, uh, which is Muldoon Backwards, who you'll know is a prominent surfer from New Zealand from the 70s. Uh, so it was about 73, four, Noodle was running around for Freeman. And, um, and a horse called Olga Corbett, named after the Russian gymnast. So, so from an early age, I was influenced by my two older brothers. Uh, I think one, you'd say positively from a cricket perspective, or well, maybe not. And uh, one, you'd say negatively, or maybe not from a, a race perspective, being rather brother Neil. So how did your horse racing journey start to where you are now? I know you've worked in South Africa, and I've, I know you've worked in the betting industry as well. I think when, when I finished playing cricket when I was 34, I was, I was very, very keen to do something else uh, outside of the game. I, I, I got to a stage where it was, I, I felt I had... Um, you know, cricket was just just cricket was just me. I mean, I, I I needed to do something else, and I don't know. I just I, 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 I like racing. I, I like punting. I still like punting, and I don't think it's a bad thing to say. You, know, you follow horses and you have a punt and and things like that. And I, I don't think it's a overly PC thing to say. And, and I just felt like that was something I'd like to get involved in. Um, and um, I was lucky enough to get my first job after career as being a bookmaker for the TAB in New Zealand uh, on on soccer. I've always followed my football, love soccer, and all sports really. And um, and just it just grew from there. My interest in getting involved and in, in more about racing and punting and wagering and and yeah, I find the people you meet in, in, in these kind of um, spheres are they're good people, and um, I've really enjoyed it since. But you've also worked, you know, I think, in Singapore and New Zealand in horse racing as well. Yeah, not so much Singapore and horse racing. I was actually in charge of the sports betting in Singapore, working for the government there, a company called Singapore Pools, and that was to do with, with football. Uh, the local betting on, on the football in Singapore, also international betting as well. So we were there from 2006 to 2011, then went back to South Africa and worked in horse racing there in terms of their media and communications and stuff like that and uh, their TV, and then came back to to the Waikato Racing Club in, uh, in Hamilton, New Zealand, and, and ran the race club there. So um, I, I guess when you look at my interest in, in horse racing and, 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 and wagering, it's kind of uh, quite rounded. I'd, I'd probably most enjoy the wagering side of things and look at the way that goes, but uh, running a racing club is also a lot of fun. So when you've been in the UK here, have you watched any of the major races over here as well? I was very lucky when I was working for Pumalela in South Africa about 2012, around then, to be in, I went to a conference at Chelsea uh, at Stanford Bridge and had a day at uh, Newmarket, Dewhurst Day, a horse called Dawn Approach. I, I won the uh, Dewhurst, I reckon, that day. Uh, I think Jim Bolger was training the horse just sold to Godolphin. I stand to be corrected. 
That's um, right. It's about 2012, 2013, that sort of time, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, correct. So yeah. I, was, I was lucky enough to be invited out to the parade ring there with uh, the, the shakes and everything else. It was, it was a bit of a highlight for me, actually. But they had, they had a race on the card, Stephen, and you, you probably know more about than I do, but it, it started in one county and finished in another called the Cambridgeshire Cup, I think it was. And yeah, the Cambridgeshire Cup. Yeah, 4,000-metre race. I mean, jeepers. Um, the only 4,000-metre races I've seen in New Zealand or Australia are ones where you actually jump over some jumps, you know, but uh, this was a flat race. I know uh, oh, the, the Cambridgeshire is a mile, just a mile and a furlong. We also have the Cesarowicz, which is a, just over two that, miles. That's probably the Cesarowicz. race. Yeah, yeah, it might be something like that. It was something yeah. else, but I remember these specks in the distance coming from miles away and, and people were saying, well, there's a, there's a horses there. I'm thinking, jeepers, I watched it on TV. It's too far away, but... Uh, like, like Newmarket, well, I haven't been to Ascot. Yeah, I'd love to get to Ascot. I've been to Leicester a couple of times, been to North uh, Nottingham. I, I played league cricket in Hull when I was uh, young, after the West Indies, actually, 1985, and went to Pontefract and Beverly and a few of the courses around there and uh, loved those. Uh, loved Pontefract, actually. Terrific course. Uh, but really, I really enjoy those uh, those aspects of just turning up with a T-shirt and shorts and jandals and uh, just going some of the can of beer and, uh, and your race guide just sitting by the side of the, of the road and watching, watching a couple of races. Right, and you've also worked as a Sky Sports commentator. So I was going to ask your point of view on the New Zealand team that are shortly to be touring the UK. We've got two tests, one at um, Lords and one at Edgbaston, and they're playing India in the World Test Championship final um, at the Aegeus Bowl? Well, firstly, can I say, I mean, I, and I was really surprised by this news, as, as you might have been as well, two days ago, BJ Watling announced his retirement from from Test cricket, um, and from all cricket, actually. And uh, he's, he's someone who slips under the radar quite a bit, doesn't he? I mean, it's, it's a record when you look at it and when you compare it against other Test wicketkeeper batsmen over the history of Test matches, his record will stack up against anyone's. I mean, he's been incredible, and uh, he's he's a, he's a quiet guy. I did, I did a work with, bit of work with Northern Districts Cricket three or four years ago. I was on the board there, and then a bit of work selecting as well. And uh, just a hell of a good guy, a, a solid guy. He'd be he'd be the one guy in your team you want to have in your team because he's just one of those quiet guys that goes about his work. So I think. Good, Big kudos to him, the fact that he's, he's, he's getting out on his own terms and getting out at the top of his game. And you know, and the reason I mention that, Stephen, is because I reckon that sort of guy will motivate this New Zealand side in his last tour to actually you know, really achieve uh, maximum benefit from the tour. Uh, look, this side is, 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 is terrifically led by Kane Williamson. Um, his, his achievements as... A captain, uh, nothing compared to what he would achieve as a batsman. He's going to break all sorts of records from a New Zealand perspective when he finishes playing. Uh, the support act is un- unbelievable. I mean, in terms of Tom Latham, I think in his own right would be uh, a standout performer in any other era for New Zealand cricket. Ross Taylor, obviously, as well. They've got a guy there from Johannesburg who went to the Keirs, uh, King Edwards and uh, Joe Berg School, where Neil McKenzie went, Graham Smith went and others went, a guy called Devon Conway, who Englishmen may not have seen. Well, when you see him, you'll remember him because he can play. And uh, he's a serious player and he's someone New Zealand cricket will, will get in their top six and he'll, he'll score runs. Uh, and their bowling attack. I mean, what do you do? I mean, who do you leave out? 
Um, Jemison's come on board. His, his, his numbers in the last 12 or 15 months are unreal. We all know about Bolton Southey and, and Wagner. Goodness, I mean, every team needs a Neil Wagner. He's, he's, he's the battery that never ceases to lose energy. I mean, so I don't want to talk us up too much, Stephen, but I, but I am. And, uh, and good luck, England, really. Well, thanks for that. Uh, the, you certainly got the uh, bowling attack for our conditions early season, although we had a, have had a very dry uh, spring here, although the last couple of weeks it's rained virtually non-stop. So probably the weather now that's going to start suiting your bowling. And BJ Watling, I know what he's like, having been like you he's were, although I didn't know you. Mm. No, didn't know you, of course, at the time at the Mount Monganui tests when he got mm. get 200, I think, didn't he, in that game? With Mitchell Santner, didn't he? Mitchell Santner got 100 as well. So he's just one of those guys. I think he came to New Zealand when he was 12 or 13 from Durban. Uh, I think New Zealand's been a bit of a you know, a location of choice for South Africans who, who, who moved there and they've all got a point to prove, I guess, in some extent. You know, Wagner's a good, good example. That Grant Elliott was too. Uh, Devin Conway is. Um, but but Watling's just, just incredible. And uh, I think you'll find he'll stay in the game. He's, uh, I, I believe he's pretty keen as to, to coach. And he's a sort of guy as a coach. You just think to yourself, well, he's just going to, he's going to do it all there as well. And the final against India, that should be a good game with the Indian bowling attack and their batting lineup as well. I mean, you look around the, I mean, you're talking about the 80s before we were, we were uh, I mean, you know, batting against some of the 80s bowling attacks was pretty hard work. We had pretty much every country around the world had, had good bowlers. Um, it's, it's getting a bit back to, that, back to that now, isn't it? England got a good bowling attack. Likes of Mark Wood, uh, obviously Anderson, Broad, and others. Uh, Wokes, I think, is kind of outstanding and is terrific in those conditions. India probably got you know half a dozen who could play. Uh, Pakistan got a good, good, good bowling attack. South Africa haven't got a bad one. He's only got a very good one. In Australia, have got an outstanding one. So uh, you're getting back to a situation now where the bowlers are, uh, have got some kind of uh, sway, whereas I think the batsmen. At some stages in the early 2000s, had had a bit too much going their way. Well, it looks like we've gone full circle from when you started your test career a little bit. So uh, perhaps mm. a good time to uh, finish today's podcast. Uh, thank you very much for joining me on the paddock and the pavilion. Good luck to New Zealand in the final. Um, and not so much good luck in the two games against England. And uh, best luck for the racing at Hawkesbury for the rest of the season. Stephen, it'd be very enjoyable, and I've managed to get through about half a bottle of red wine. So let me sit back and watch a bit of the uh, Italian Open from Rome tennis. I understand Berrettelli is playing Sitsipas, uh, surely. So that's going to be me for the next hour or so. Yeah, he's good to watch. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you very much. Cheers, Stephen. Thank you for listening to the Paddock and the Pavilion. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and now on Instagram at the Pad and Pad. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.